Um, we're continuing in our series, Superman HD, taking an up close and personal look at our Lord, who is the one and true Superman, the God man, human and divine HD. And we're in John chapter 15. We're looking at verses 12 to 25 today. And um, I, saw, I saw a trailer this week. You know us on films, right? I, I bet you think that us guys who get up in the pulpit, the time that we're not spent preparing in the Word, we're spend, spending watching films and film trainers, trailers. I wish that were the case. But um, I, saw, I saw a trailer this week with um, Sylvester Stallone in it. And it was another boxing film trailer. And I saw this trailer and I said to myself, hold on, there was, no, there was no sound at the time when I was watching it. I said to myself, hold on a minute, this brother's doing another Rocky. <laughs> he actually can't be serious. I mean, I don't know how many Rockies it got to, was it four, five? Five! Number one was a classic, you didn't have to go no further than that. And so the notion of Sylvester Stallone coming back as Rocky and conquering anything was really not plausible in the slightest that to me was a film that was sure to flop but thankfully as I watched the trailer again at a later date he's seeking to invest his experience and wisdom in another um, one of his arch opponent's sons Um, that's as much as I've got from it at this point but it's definitely a film I'd like to take in and so why do I say that Um, Rocky Balboa Coming back at this stage in life would not be conquering anything. But love never fails to conquer. Love conquers all. And it's important for us as Christians to have a firm confidence in that truth, but also understand what that means. Because a lot of people talk about love these days, very freely and very casually. And yet, in talking about love, people have different ideas of what it actually means. And very often it's contrary to what God reports love to be about and what love means. And so we're going to look at that today as we look at our text. And so um, look with me at John 15 verses 12 to 25 and then I'll pray. All right, there we go. This is my commandment, that you love one another... As I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, They would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. 
but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Father God, we come before you with thanksgiving today. Because truly we recognize that through your word you have revealed yourself. We appreciate that your word is the, the volume of the book, as it says in Hebrews, that is written concerning your son, the ultimate divine revelation. And Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace your word today, Lord. That it would be more than just words, but that, Lord, you would impact us, changing us and transforming us to be like Jesus. Thank you for this privilege, Lord. Be glorified, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room, and in a sense, he's sharing his last words with them. And as he's doing this, he's preparing them for that ministry that he has called them to as messengers sent not only to bear his message, but also to establish a new community of people. And it's important that we don't separate the two. It can be so easy for us to kind of just think, these guys are messengers like postmen. They're just going to send out to deliver a message, and the Lord will do with it whatever he will. But that is not what is in view here. The Lord is speaking to his disciples, setting them apart as apostles, special sent messengers, And these messengers, we're told in Ephesians 2, are the foundation upon which the church is built. So a new community of people, a new people would be identified in the earth as being the people of God. And as Jesus is sharing these words, he's sharing the the mandate. He's sharing not just the mission, but also the, the, the culture of that community, the values of that community the convictions of that community, as through these, the apostles. And so Jesus reiterates in verse 12, the commandment that he gave in chapter 13, that you love one another as I have loved you. You could stop right there. Just have a time of prayer and intercession as we pray for the grace to fulfill the reality of what that means. Now, even at this point, the disciples didn't fully appreciate all that that meant, but they were progressively having a clearer understanding because they understood that fundamentally, the primary way in which Jesus has loved them is that he has revealed the Father to them. He has revealed the Father to them, even at great cost to himself, the ultimate cost yet to be paid. He's experienced rejection, persecution, threat of death, and all this within the experience of the disciples as they followed him as Lord. And yet Jesus has given himself relentlessly And faithfully to reveal the Father to them. Demonstrating the greatest love that could be shared. Now, Jesus says that you love one another as I have loved you. And it's important for us to have a little bit of insight to the use of that word love. R&B singers use that word love when they're trying to seduce women. People use that word love when they're endeavoring to communicate their affections or how, what pleasure they find in a car or a team. I love my team. This word in English is quite one-dimensional. It's used in many different ways, but it's the same word. And yet in the Greek they had four different words for love. They had four different words for love, and it's helpful because in the use of those 
four different words, there would be greater clarity as to what was being, what kind of love was being expressed. In Greek, they had the word eros. Some of you have been to Piccadilly Circus and seen a statue of Eros, wondered really what it's all about. Well, Eros speaks of that romantic love. They also had the word Sturgio or Sturgie, and that spoke of a family love, a love shared amongst families. There was a, the word Phileo, a word that we are maybe a little more accustomed to I'm appreciating, which speaks of friendly love, the love that one has for a friend. And then there's the word agapo or agape, which speaks of divine love. And so you can see that the different words convey different meanings, which can help give clarity. Which word is being used here? Well, as you would guess, it's the word agapo or agape. Now, many have termed this the word that means divine love. But in original Greek language, that wasn't necessarily the case. In fact, actually, the word agape existed in Greek, but was actually seldom used, if ever. Um, We see this as we look at the, um, the definition of the word in the Vines Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. It says, agape, the characteristic word of Christianity, or word that has come to characterize Christianity. And since the spirit of revelation has used it to express ideas previously unknown. So this word existed There was no real use of this word in the Greek language. And yet, as the Spirit of the Lord orchestrated the writing of Scripture, he picked upon this word, which had no distinct meaning in the culture, to define its meaning. Expressing ideas previously unknown. Inquiry into its use, whether in Greek literature or in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, throws but little light upon its distinctive meaning in the New Testament. So basically, looking at the use of the word in the culture, looking at the use of the word even in the Old Testament, is unhelpful, because this word just sat on the shelf, redundant, until the Lord picked it up and chose to use it to express his definition of love. How has the Lord done that? We see that God uses the word to describe his attitude towards his son. John 17 verse 26 being an example and many other examples. So we know that the love that God has for the son is unparalleled. It's unmatched. At the baptism of Jesus, as he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended as a dove upon him, and a voice spoke from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. No reservation, no hindrance, no distortion. A complete and pure love. And yet also this word is used with regard to God's attitude toward the human race. The same word. The same word that's used about his son is used of his attitude towards people in a general sense. So we see this in John 3.16 or Romans 5 verse 8. And yet the same word is also used in relation to God's attitude towards his people, towards believers. And we see this expressed in John 14, verse 21. So we see that 
It's not the object of the love that is the focus, but it is the source of it. It's not the one who is being loved that defines the nature of this love in the way that Eros might, or Sturgia was family, or Philea was friend. But actually, as opposed to the one being loved, defining what type of love this is, actually, it's the source of the love, where the love is coming from, that defines what type of love this is. And so in this, and you have to forgive me, I had this noted on a slide, I've, I've lost it somehow. But by definition, agape is understood to mean an unconditional commitment to the best interests of another person as an act of the will. An unconditional commitment to the best interests of another person as an act of the will. Not just because we're family, not just because I fancy you, not just because we're friendly, but it's an unconditional commitment to the best interests of another person. Now, important thing to qualify is the use of the word best interest. Because everybody has their own notion of what's best for them, right? So people will say, well, you know what? Why would you argue about gay marriage? Because we love one another. And as Christians, we love one another. And so if it's all a, 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 a love fest, then why don't we just embrace it, love one another, endorse it, and carry on? Because this is what's best for me, that I'm able to love this person of the same gender in this way. Well... No one's saying that you can't love that person. Um, undoubtedly, if we consider the four uses of the word love in Greek, it seems that you are confusing the use of the word love. But nonetheless, whatever you would regard as being best for you is not really the issue. The issue is God. What does he determine is a person's best interest? And so this isn't a license or a kind of um, uh, an opportunity just to say, well, you know what, I think it's best that um, I, I, I have relations with minors, which somebody could say. And all of the other distortions of love that people could communicate. But actually... What does God say? And we say, we recognize that God has revealed in his word what his will is concerning humanity. And so, best interest becomes defined by what God says in his word. An unconditional commitment to God's definition of what is best for an individual as an act of the will. It's important because in our day and age, we hear a lot of talk about loving one another and embracing one another. And if you don't agree with someone's perspective, they will call you unloving. And if you disagree with someone's commitments and convictions, they will call you intolerant and unloving. But such people make the mistake of presenting love without truth. You see, divine love, God's love, is not a love that is absent of truth but it is a love that is based upon truth. In Ephesians 4:15, the apostle Paul makes this reference, speak the truth in love. <clears throat> Speaking the truth in love. And we see here an example of the relationship between those two principles. Some say 
Nobody cares what you know until they know that you care. And there is a certain truth in that. It's a truism. But I would also say that love without truth is mere sentiment. And that's often what Christianity is reduced to, sentimentality. We have warm and fuzzy feelings towards each other. And we kind of have this kind of sense of fake camaraderie. Because even though I don't agree with you, I'm going to endorse what you're about. And because I don't want to be intolerant and unloving, when really, when I, when I examine my convictions, when I look at the scripture and it speaks to me and to my heart, and I realize that actually, I don't agree with what you're saying, I then become merely sentimental. I'm just expressing the sentiment of love without the substance of it. There's no truth. And yet, truth without love is mere philosophy. So people want to theorize. People want to pontificate. People want to be legalists. So a current debate at the moment, which you may or may not be aware of, is um, relating to um, a, a, a Christian record label. Well, I use the term loosely. Um, Christian record label called Reach Records. Um, Reach Records is most notably known for being the home and founding um, base of the artist called Lecrae. Um, he has a number of a number of albums and um, has. In, in, in many ways been a champion of urban Christian music throughout the generations. I say generations, throughout the, 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 the years of the, the current generation. They recently um, made a, a decision to take one of their defining values out of their mission statement as a, as a record label. And so if anybody knows anything about Reach Records... Um, they're, they're also known as the 116 click or the 116 movement based on Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And their slogan is unashamed. And it was a real rallying cry. I, I'm, along with many others who enjoy the art of Christian hip-hop, have cheered to their music throughout time. So it was an interesting move when they decided to take this core conviction and value out of their mission statement, no longer identifying themselves as unashamed Christians. Now, for those who know anything about their journey and Lecrae's journey, you will know that this has not been an, an overnight occurrence. But over the past five, six years, maybe more, there's been this progressive move towards becoming main, more mainstream as an artist. Why do I bring that up in this context? Well, primarily because the responses to that move have been very, very um, telling, been very revealing. So it's not just the move that people have made that, that, that Reach Records have made in terms of taking this out. But it's then the way that people have responded to it. Christians on blogs and message boards and so on and so forth have poured in their opinions and their views and their convictions. And to be fair, most often in a very unloving way. As far as they're concerned... The truth is the truth, and I don't care about you. I don't care about how you feel. I don't care about how you perceive it, but you just got to know the truth, and furthermore, you got to know that I'm telling you the truth. You know what? That's not healthy. It's not healthy, and it's not helpful. There is a way to express the truth, but to do so in love. And as Christians, we have to be very careful because when we 
begin to respond to situations, whether it's of that nature or of a more personal nature, we have to be careful not to find ourselves in the place of the Pharisee who just wants to pick up stones and throw them without consideration. Who wants to draw for the boulders and the rocks and bring them down without any kind of clarification, without any kind of fair and due hearing. And so, we who love the truth must be very careful not to find ourselves in a place where we are expressing this truth and standing on this truth and pursuing this truth as we ought to, but without love. And the reality is that we've experienced that here among us. We've experienced those unkind, uninformed opinions expressed about another person behind their back without knowing the full story, ready to declare and decree judgment. We've experienced the social media communication on whichever format or platform you choose to care care to name. Expressing things that haven't actually been expressed to the individual concerned, personally. These things are not love. You may have a very right and valid point, but it's important that it is expressed and exercised in love. You see, the the rules of scripture even govern social media. I know social media becomes this whole other world where people adopt a whole other persona. They become someone else. And it seems that there's, there's there's a sense in us as Christians needing to kind of actually catch up with the reality of the, the, the forum and realize that Jesus is Lord over all, including social media. And our social media interaction is to be submitted and subjected to him. The things we like, the things we say, the things we repost, the things we retweet, is supposed to be filtered through the lens of scripture. There is no exemption. There is no get out clause because it's social media. And so when the Bible says if you have ought against someone, go to them, I, I really don't understand that to mean in a public forum. <laughs> I'm just going to send them a tweet <laughs> with all of the other people that are connected to this. And you know what? They might have only five people on their, their friends list or whatever you call it. And you might have 10 But that's 15 more than need to be involved in that conversation. That's not love. If you have something against someone, you go to them and speak to them. And so you might want to, okay, social media, direct message. It's at least one-to-one. I'm not hating on social media. I'm advocating the right use of it amongst us as a community of believers. So this is what Jesus speaks of when he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now at this point you might be thinking, you know what? I've got some blessed people in my life, you know. I've got some really good friends and I thank God for them. Um... If I have to begin to think about who would I lay down my life for, uh, I'll have to draw up a short list. (laughs) That That actually isn't the point of this statement. It's not really who's my true friend. Who's really worthy of me laying my life down for? Because we can kind of fall into that mode, right? Like, this applies to those to whom it applies. All others need not apply. That's not what is being said here. Look what Jesus goes on to say in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So, our love for another 
our laying down our life for another is not based on anything to do with them, but it's based on everything to do with Christ. Love one another as, two-letter word, huge difference, as I have loved you. Who is there ever in history who has deserved Christ to die for them? Which of you would put your hand up and say, yes, I deserve that Jesus died for me, the Son of God, eternal, that he came as a man and suffered death. For I deserve that. None of us could put our hands up to that. And this is the love with which he has loved. And then he goes on to say, you are my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And so fundamentally, we begin to see here in verse 14. And then Jesus reinforces that in verse 15. No longer do I call you servant, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Again, he emphasizes the fact that I view you as my friend. And what he's saying is, if you view me as your friend, then as a result of that, you will do what I say. And furthermore, you will lay down your life in response to me. Then you full well that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, manifest among men. This wasn't a light thing for them to be called. We sing the song, I'm a friend of God. Or however the melody goes. Mash up the people, them song. <laughs> it's easy to sing, but actually, what does that really mean? We see in Genesis when Abraham was petitioning the Lord over Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, like, Lord, don't wipe them out. If it's 20 people, if it's 15 people, if it's... And the, the Lord stands there, the, the pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus, says, shall I withhold from my friend what I am to do? The disciples understood that the dynamic and nature of their relationship was more than that of servant. It's not that they are no longer servants, but they are more than that of servants. Jesus didn't say, no longer are you servants. This isn't now some get out clause. I don't have to serve the Lord. I'm his friend. We've got an understanding. We're on a level. I'm a friend of God. And he understands when I don't really feel like loving my neighbor. I don't really feel like serving the body. I, he understands that because we're friends. We're tight like that. That's not actually what's being advocated here. Jesus didn't say you are no longer servants. He says, no longer do I call you servants. I heard Don Carson share this story, which I thought was really very helpful. He talked about an army major who had an assistant. Let's call him a corporal. I'm sure that corporal's lower than major, right? Somebody help me. Yeah? Brother Andrew said, yes, I'll take that. And so the corporal was basically the major's assistant, and he would be responsible for driving him around. He was just like his PA, basically. And um, this, this corporal served as the major's assistant for years, to the point where the major would begin to really kind of confide in this corporal. And they would talk not just as military, formal colleagues, but as peers and as friends. You see, that corporal became a friend of the major. But that didn't change his relationship to him as his assistant. He still served that major. And yet that level of intimacy, that disclosure, that bringing in, marked a, another dimension of their relationship. And we see this as... Jesus speaks of this here. And so you are my friends if you do what I command you. 
It's all well and good saying that God is a friend of mine. But are you really a friend of God? Because the right and proper response is to do his will, if that be the case. As a friend of God, we have a a right and proper and healthy recognition of who he is. Now, this term servant, um, it's something that is worth touching on and such that we will expand on it in community group. Um, The translators have chosen to translate this word here, servant, which oftentimes is translated to be slave. So the original word is doulos. And this isn't the primary focus of the the text, so I'm not going to elaborate much. But there's much been said about slavery in the Bible. And much has been said about the way in which the Bible endorses slavery and was therefore used as a tool in the hands of slave masters to um, manipulate and compel slaves to be obedient. It's true that these things are said about the Bible. But the reality is that people who say those things generally have very little time to learn what the Bible actually says about slavery. Anyone can say anything that they want to say. In fact, anyone could turn around and say that you said anything. Well, you know what Pastor Rob said? As they take the quote out of context, as they distort the quote, and it becomes something else that he never really said or never really meant. You see, people are very quick to say God said without letting God finish speaking. You know when you're having a conversation and somebody just keeps butting in and they, they finish your sentence like they know what you're going to say and you're like, no, actually, that's not what I was going to say. Let me finish speaking. I can just see the, the Father in heaven, like, just let me finish speaking. As if. You see, the Lord has spoken in Christ. It's revealed in the, 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 the totality of the word. And to cherry pick little pieces out of scripture and to use it is actually just revealing that somebody has no genuine intentions towards God or his word. We must be Bereans. We must be students of truth who hear what is said and also search the scriptures to see that it is so. The reality is that these arguments concerning the what the Bible says about slavery, uh, the old, this old talk that I've been a Christian 30 years. When I first became a Christian, those things got refuted and silenced. But history repeats itself, right? Now, this word, doulos, slave, is the most common and general word for servant in the New Testament, frequently indicating subjection without the idea of bondage. In first century Israel, and during the time of the scriptures being written, there were many different types of servitude or slavery. You had different types of servitude within the Jewish community based on the Old Testament, And so that experience was one thing. You had different types of servitude under Roman um, rule. So this one word can't be used to pinpoint one particular type when it's being used in a general and universal sense. As we see here, the word is often used in scripture to denote a certain level of subjection or servitude without bondage. 
It's not forced servitude. It's not forced submission. And so that's not the kind of slavery that is being spoken about. Necessarily. And we'll talk more about this at community group. But let's, let's just see what the Bible does say about that type of slavery from both the Old and the New Testament. So here we see 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 to 10. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. Other translations use this word, but when they, when they translate this, they say man-stealing. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So this non-exhaustive list, including enslaving or man-stealing or kidnapping, as some translations say, speaks directly against forced slavery as being contrary to sound doctrine. So this is not being promoted as something that Christians ought to participate in, but this is being denounced as something that the law speaks against, the law of God speaks against. Now, you might say, okay, that's the New Testament, but slavery goes back to the Old Testament. So what about there? And furthermore, Paul's quoting from the law. Where in the law does it say anything about that? Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. Very plain and very clear. This is the very same chapter where people like to jump in and cherry pick about the treatment of slaves. Not understanding that it's talking about a different type, a different experience of slavery to what they assume. Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him. Now, isn't that the kind of slavery that we're used to hearing being talked about? The West African trade triangle. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall what? They'll receive a slap on the wrist. They'll be told off. They'll have to pay back the money. No, shall be put to death. So the Bible spoke in the strongest terms against the type of slavery that it is often accused of promoting. The Bible doesn't promote slavery. Like I say, we'll talk more about that when it comes to community groups. And yet Jesus is saying, look, whatever concept of servanthood you, you appreciate, I'm calling you friend. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. He has revealed the father in both word and deed. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. Now, this is a, a fundamental principle in the Christian faith. It's true of the disciples. We know that Jesus went, he picked the disciples, and he called them to himself. And this is how it worked with first century discipleship. That the, the rabbis, the teachers, would select who they want to follow them. Some people who were from well-to-do families and they wanted the best for their children, it was like trying to get their child into prep school. They would kind of make the application. Well, you go and be under rabbi such and such or you go and be under rabbi such and such. But even then, the rabbi was the one who would choose as to who would follow 
And it wasn't one who would just receive his teaching, but it's one who would mimic his life. And so this is true in practice, but it's also true in principle. That God is responsible for choosing those who would become his disciples. Now, you would, you would appreciate that that's only, that only makes sense. If God is God and he's supreme and he's almighty, then he's going to have the right to choose for whatever reason he wants. That's his prerogative. And so we understand and appreciate that God is the one who chooses. And he chooses with a purpose. He chooses with fruitfulness as the goal. And that that fruit should remain, that fruit should abide. And in the context of that relationship, and in the context of being called to love one another as Christ has loved us, being chosen by God to bear fruit, we're invited to ask the Father in Christ's name. Now, a brief word about this. This doesn't mean that every time you say a prayer, you have to say in the name of Jesus at the end of it. I know some of you, when you first came to Ecclesia and you heard us pray from the front and you didn't hear in the name of Jesus at the end and you're used to hearing that, you kind of felt a bit nervous. Like, did the Lord actually hear that prayer though? Because you never said in the name of Jesus. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about a formula like abracadabra that is going to be the magic words we say at the end of a prayer and that all of a sudden is going to be like, oh, yep, I heard in the name of Jesus, okay. In the name of is one who bears the name, who is in intimate relationship by way of union. So a police officer doesn't stand before you, pull you over and say, stop in the name of the law. You used to see that in the black and white films, right? Stop in the name of the law. They don't need to say in the name of the law because we understand that they are one, united in the law. They represent the law. So when they say stop, you just see the uniform, you see the badge, the warrant card or whatever. You just draw your brakes because you know that to defy that is to def- not to def- You know what? The, the, the policeman could be four foot ten. This ain't no disrespect to no one who's four foot ten. <laughs> I'm just saying that he could be very physically unintimidating. <laughs> Paul, you're not helping me, you know, brother. <laughs> he could be very physically unintimidating. It's not because of his size or intimidation that you're going to stop. It's because he represents the law. And so this is what is being communicated here. By reason of relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, we can come to the Lord and we can speak to the Lord and we can ask of the Lord and we don't even have to say in the name of Jesus at the end. And yet the Father hears us. We're given open access by reason of relationship. Because anyone who doesn't have relationship can stand up and say in the name of Jesus. But is God hearing that? Really? Really? John 9 says that God doesn't hear the prayer of sinners. So whether they say in the name of Jesus or they snap their foot and say in Jesus' name, it really actually makes no difference. There's no relationship there. Now, the next verse is very helpful in clarifying the real meaning of verse 16. In verse 17, Jesus says, These things I command you so that you will love one another. Again, he he, he bookends the context. Verse 12, love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you that you will love one another. The asking of the Father is to enable us to fulfill his command to love one another. 
in the primary sense. It's not a blank check. Well, I, I, I've come to the Lord, and um, he is my genie. And so you know what? I can just ask whatever I want as I say it in Jesus' name and rub that lamp, and the Father's going to give it to me. A text without a context is a con. And so many of us have been conned by that false doctrine. So just as before, earlier on in the chapter, when the Lord invites us to pray, to pray to the Father in the context of pruning, in the context of the challenges that that will present, we're here also invited to come to the Father, primarily in the context of the challenges of loving one another. And the Lord fully well understands that we will be challenged in loving one another. Because despite what Stevie Wonder says, loving you isn't necessarily easy because... I'm not going to say you're not beautiful because you're going to take it the wrong way. Say that Pastor Ephraim said I'm ugly, you know. But we are ugly at times in our personality. We're sinfully ugly. And sometimes we're hard to love. And it's not easy. And we need to go to the Father and ask for help to love one another. And then he goes on to contrast as he establishes the, 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 the nature of relationship that his people are to have. One that is a committed um, pursuit of each other's best interests. As an act of the will, not based on my feelings, as an act of the will. In contrast, he goes on to say, the world is going to hate you. But don't be fazed by that, because it hated me before it hated you. If, if you were of the world, because we're not, right? The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know him. They don't know God. Now, I want you to consider this. Uh, maybe a century before Christ lived a philosopher called Socrates. And Socrates, Socrates said, if there were ever a perfect man to walk this earth, we would kill him. Mm, that's how I felt. If there were ever a perfect man to walk this earth, we would kill him. A century or so later, Jesus comes on the scene. Perfect man. What happens? People want to kill him. Why did they want to kill him? He was perfect. I mean, think about it for a minute. He never done or said anything wrong. He never thought anything wrong. He never had a bad attitude. He never had a wrong intention. He was never deceitful. There was actually no fault that anyone could find with him. Put yourself in that situation. You know that person at work who's always right? even when you don't want them to be right, and you hate the fact that they're right, they're always right. Now, sometimes a person's in, in, that, in that position, and they're arrogant, they're, they're, they're proud, and they, they have this kind of swagger when they walk, like to say, I'm always right. And that in and of itself can be enough to cause you to feel like, you know what, I want to punch you in the face. But Jesus never even had that. He was the meek majesty. And so Jesus never had this air of arrogance about him. He never done anything wrong. Why would people hate him? You tell me. Why would people hate him? Why would people want to kill him and persecute his own? I know what my motive would be. Every time he speaks, he always says the right thing. And very often, it's not what I'm thinking. 
And it just exposes me within my heart that I'm a wicked person. Because, you know them ones, you're speaking to someone and you're like, you know, they tell you, I was, I was driving and this person cut me up and they jumped out of their car and I jumped out of my car and I said, God bless you, my friend. <laughs> and you stand there thinking, I know if that was me in those circumstances, it wouldn't be no God bless you that's talking out here. PTL, my brother. Praise the Lord. No. And in that instant, you don't even say nothing. You just keep your mouth shut. You're just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Praise God. Because you know in your heart that that's not what you would be saying. And you imagine every time you meet Jesus, everything he says, everything he does convicts you to your core, exposes your wickedness, your evil intent, your deceit. Jesus, why are you go and tell them that? You didn't even need to say that, you know, just expose yourself like that. You could have just, said, just twisted it like this and it would have been fine. Could have spun it. See, they hated Jesus for the very thing that they should have adored him for. Because he was perfect. And the reality is that we're not. And so as we come to Christ, in the community of love, supporting and encouraging one another, loving one another, we anticipate that the world will hate us. No surprises there. And people will speak against you and will speak against what you believe. And why is this? Because they don't know him who sent Christ. They don't know God. And people will even do so in the name of God. But you can't have the Father without the Son. And John elaborates on this. In verse in, in first John quite extensively. And so Jesus says, Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. I have come and produced the goods. They now have no excuse. They are guilty. But now they have seen. And hated both me and my father. In chapter 10, a few chapters before, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. People often talk about the problems that they have with Jesus, but they're cool with God. And they misunderstand the unity between the father and the son. That if the father was in here in person, he would talk and walk, and do, and think, and attitude, everything exactly the same as Jesus. They're so hard, and we can't com compute that, we can't comprehend that. That two persons could be so unified, so the same, that actually, to see one is to see the other. My wife um, is a twin. Uh, she's an identical twin, which posed certain challenges when we um, first met. And um, there was a time when you could have said, they look very different now, but there's a time when you could have said, to, to see Judith is to see her sister. So identical. That begins to express a sense of the unity of the Son and the Father in very limited terms. Verse 25, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. This gives us all the more incentive to love one another. This provides a clear sense of the need for our unity as believers. Because you know what? We ain't going to find no love in the world as Christians. We ought not to. 
In fact, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, woe to you when all men speak well of you. We're doing something wrong if we have everybody's approval in life as Christians. We're not salty. We have no zest in our life, no spiritual um, Christ-like zest in our life that causes a person to feel uncomfortable. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be obnoxious and belligerent and unloving and unkind and judgmental in the way that we interact with people. But as we hold to our convictions, as we hold to our standards in Christ, there's supposed to be a sense of distinct difference between us to the point where people may even come at you about it. Know this. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I'm going to invite the team to come back. And I want to um, challenge you today. What does your love for the saints look like? You know, there could be all kind of manner of specific applications that are shared. One helpful thing I think will be helpful to end with. As you consider your relationship to the people of God, in any sense, whether it's individual or corporate, Ask yourself, is what you're thinking, is what you're intending, is what you're doing loving? Is it loving? Is it loving to the people of God? Is it loving to his body? Is it loving? The way you're about to speak about that person, is it loving? The way you're about to criticize this ministry, is it loving? You see, we're not called to love one another based on the fact that we like one another. This is an unconditional commitment to the best interests of another as defined by God as an act of the will. But you can be assured that as you lay down your life, Not even for anyone, you know. First and foremost, we lay down our life in response to Christ. If you're laying down your life for anyone's approval, you will die from their rejection. And that's a quote from Lecrae (laughs) for all the haters. (laughs) And it's true. We don't live for people's approval. And we don't live especially for the world's approval. We have received God's approval in Christ Jesus. That is amazing. Let's stand. Father God, we do ask for your, for your forgiveness for the ways in which we've not loved our brethren. And Lord, I do realize that even now, some of us, as we reflect on this, need to go and make right. We need to go and we need to apologize and we need to ask for forgiveness for the lack of love that we've showed to certain of our brothers and sisters. Because this would be a righteous response. And Lord, I also recognize that you have filled us with your love, your love, a love that you have demonstrated without limit, a love that has resulted in you laying down your life for us, and even in doing so, calling us your friend. Even before we've done anything in response, Lord, you call us your friend. Such is your grace toward us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in the reality of that. And that as a people, Lord, we would be tight. That as a people, Lord, we would be committed to one another unconditionally, to each other's best interests. That, Lord, our our motives and our actions and our words would be filtered by the lens of love. And that, Lord, you would show yourself strong among us, Lord. 
and when the attacks of the enemy and when the persecution comes and when the words of condemnation and ridicule come against us, Lord, and even when the pain comes, Lord, that, Lord, we will stand firm together, united in you, experiencing your love as we love one another. Help us, Lord, I ask in the name of your glorious Son. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.